The bride-to-be does not think, well, it doesn't really matter if he dumps me in 20 years for a prettier woman. Just as long as I get maybe at least 20 years out of him, I'd be happy. No, Paul's point is this is a self-evident truth that marriage is only to be broken by death. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've moved into chapter 7 in our study of the book of Romans, and at the beginning of this chapter, we find the Apostle Paul addressing readers who were familiar with the many laws that had been drawn up over the years by the rabbis and scribes. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, we'll look at a principle laid out by Paul, an illustration of that principle, and then Monday, we will see how that principle is to be applied. If you're using your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, first let's consider the principle of being released from the law. Now I want you to notice how verse 1 opens because he addresses these legalistic Christians as brethren, as brothers. Or do you not know brethren, or you could say cistern? It's a generic word in the New Testament that refers to brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't you know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? So Paul's not mad at these folks, these true, genuine Christians. He wants to love them into the truth. And if you remember in chapter 6 in verse 3, he has already asked some questions, and he's going to do the same again in this chapter. In 6 and verse 3, he said, don't you know the meaning of your spirit baptism and its implications? In chapter 6 and verse 16, he will say, don't you know that you become a slave of the one whom you obey? And once again, he's going to say, and do you not know, brethren, but it's a rhetorical question of sorts because he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He assumes they know. Now follow this carefully. Look again in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking of, to those who know the law. Now what law is he referring to? He's not referring to the Old Testament Mosaic law. In fact, uh, the New American Standard so precisely translated with a small letter L, as does the King James and a number of other translations. When you see capital L, it's referring to Mosaic law. When you see small letter L, as in this verse, he's speaking to a law or to a principle of law. And that's clear in the original. Now understand, here's the challenge of the original. In the manuscripts that we have, they're either all lowercase letters all uppercase letters in Greek. There's not capitals and lowercases mixed together. Now, if you buy a Greek New Testament today, you have that. But in the original, it's all uppercase or all lowercase. And so the translator needs to make a decision. And the decision is clear here because the article is not present. It's not the law. In fact, you could translate it, or do you not know, brethren, that I'm speaking to those who know law? In other words, Paul is speaking to those who know or understand law in general because he assumes that every Roman, every Greek, every Jewish man would understand the principle of law in general. Or do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Again, it's a rhetorical question because he says, in essence, I know that you know this truth about the law. 
You know it, don't you? Of course they do. You cannot take a corpse to court. You cannot find someone for a speeding or parking ticket if they've already died. You can't bring a dead person before a judge and a jury to be tried. No, the principle here is that the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he lives. That's true in civil law, and as we will see, it's true in certain aspects of God's law as well. You understand that, right? If someone's in prison for stealing or for murder, they, uh, and, and, and he dies while he's in prison, what are they going to say? Case dismissed. It's over. It's, it's done with. All right? That's the principle of being released from the law. Secondly, there on your outline, I want us to think about the illustration of being released from the law. Not just the principle, but the illustration. And of all the illustrations that Paul could have used, I find it fascinating that God the Holy Spirit inspires him to use an illustration concerning marriage. Look now, if you will, at verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. What's so fascinating about this principle of law and this illustration of marriage, again, is he's speaking rhetorically. He's speaking with the belief that just as they understand the principle of law has jurisdiction over an individual just as long as he is alive, he's also speaking with the belief that a person intuitively knows that marriage is binding only as long as someone is alive. Now, as we've seen already in the book of Romans, there's an assumption that people who had never seen a Bible, who had never read the first verse of Scripture, intuitively knew something about the principle of law and how law functions and operates. Why? Because, as we saw in Romans 1, uh, within us God has given revelation. How so? Romans 2.15, he wrote the law of God on your hearts. And so Paul goes after the pagan Gentile, the man who's never, ever seen a Bible. And he says, when they do what's right, their conscience affirms them. When they do what is wrong, their conscience spanks them. How do they know what's right and what's wrong? Because the law of God has been written into their hearts. Now, it is true, the Bible teaches that a man can suppress that and fight against it, and his conscience can become calloused. It can become seared as with a branding iron. And the worst state is when he gets what the Bible calls an evil conscience. An evil conscience calls good evil and evil good. And so Paul never chides a person for not knowing the law because he assumes they know it because God wrote it into their hearts. But he does condemn people for suppressing it, for twisting it, for denying it, for distorting it. So God is assuming that everyone anywhere understands that his principle was one man, one woman, until death separates them, that this is a binding contract. Now, someone might say, well, Paul obviously lived in a different day than we do. I mean, they obviously lived differently back then. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, the opposite is true. It was far worse, though we're catching up, it seems, very fast. Unlike the Lord Jesus that spoke to the permanence of marriage, many of the popular rabbis in that day taught that you could easily divorce a woman. 
And the point of debate was a verse that Moses penned in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. If we can bring it up, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Or some of your translations say some indecency in her. And so the point of debate was, what is this uncleanness? What is this indecency that was allowed because of the hardness of man's heart by which one could write a certificate of divorce? And many of the popular rabbis of the day took the Word of God and twisted the Word of God to make it say things it did not say. And so a very popular rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, said a woman could be unclean if she spoiled her husband's dinner or put too much salt in the food. Rabbi Akiba, another very popular rabbi, said that if a man found a woman that he thought was prettier than his wife, then his wife could become unclean. He could divorce her and go marry the one he thought was prettier. And the Roman view of marriage was just as corrupt, if not worse, Jerome, an ancient writer from the day, tells of one Roman woman who was on her 23rd husband and her husband on her, his 21st wife. Marriage in Roman's day was nothing more than legalized prostitution in many homes. So Paul says, listen, in spite of all that is done in your culture, I know that you know that a man and a woman belong to each other for life. He assumed that to be a self-evident truth. So please understand that when Paul speaks of one man and one woman until death severs the relationship, he is speaking a very radical thought in a culture in which that truth was spurned. Now look at verse 2. For the married woman, again, he says, is bound by law to her husband while he is living. So having stated that we are bound to the law while we are alive, now by illustration we learn the married woman is bound to her husband while he is alive. So he states the principle in verse 1. He illustrates it in verse 2. But, he continues, if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. God wants us to be married until death severs the relationship. So if your spouse dies, you don't speak of your spouse typically in the present tense, but in the past tense. Mary was my wife. Uh, Joe was my husband. Why? Because death severs the marriage covenant, not to mention that there will be no marriage in heaven as Jesus taught. So then he draws a conclusion. Look at verse 3. Follow carefully. So then, if while her husband is... If while her husband is living, she is joined, or you could translate it married, as in the King James or the NIV, because that is the thought, though the Greek text says joined. So if while, if while your husband is living, she is joined, understand, follow this, joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. The Phillips translation, which was one of the first paraphrases ever done in the 1950s in England, renders it, uh, she incurs the stigma of adultery. If her husband is alive and she's joined to another man or married to another man, she incurs the stigma of adultery. But, now watch the contrast, but, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she be joined or married to another man. Now why is that? because she's released from the law that previously bound her. 
Now, by the way, understand the Apostle Paul is not attempting here to give a full-blown discourse on the ins and outs of marriage and divorce. His focus here in using this illustration on marriage is to teach us something about our relationship to the law as it relates to our personal growth or sanctification. But understand whether it's Paul or Peter or Christ or any writer of the New Testament, they never use error to teach truth. In every parable and every illustration in the Bible, God always uses truth to teach truth. And Paul, of course, is writing by the spirit of truth, as he is called. And the point that he wants us to understand is that God intends for marriage to be a lifetime. The concept of till death do us part is not a nice idea. It's God's idea. And it's imprinted in every heart wherever people live. And so historically, even the unbeliever, typically, when they say their wedding vows... They don't say, well, what is this business about till death do us part? I'm not a Christian. That doesn't involve me. No, the unbeliever typically, even this day, says the same words as well. And the bride-to-be does not think, well, it doesn't really matter if he dumps me in 20 years for a prettier woman. Just as long as I get maybe at least 20 years out of him, I'd be happy. No, Paul's point is this is a self-evident truth that marriage is only to be broken by death. He knew that, like our day, people would contradict it, people would contest it, people would challenge it, but they still knew it to be intuitively true. He's saying, in essence, you all understand God's plan. One man, one woman, until death breaks the relationship. And by the way, this is precisely what the Lord Jesus taught. Let me refresh your mind for, with Mark chapter 10. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another woman, she is committing adultery. Whoa, pretty cut and dry. On another occasion in Luke chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You may never have been married, but you married someone who is divorced. And Jesus said, you're committing adultery. Now, Paul and Jesus are totally consistent. Why? Because they are both teaching that only death can sever the marriage relationship. Now, I'm not here today to get into the exception clause. I've got sermons on that. But let me just say there is an exception that is found only in Matthew's gospel in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And it would read, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. It would read like this, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, sexual, immorali sexual immorality, and marries another commits moikeia, adultery, two distinct words. And in the history of the church, there have been two principal ways in which the verse has been understood. For almost 1,500 years of church history, most of the church took what was called the betrothal view, that this applied only to Jews, and that's why it's found only in Matthew's gospel, because Matthew is written to Jewish believers who practice betrothal. And when you were betrothed, it's unlike engagement, you were called husband and wife. And it was such a strong relationship, though the relationship had not been consummated, 
and it usually lasts for a period of a year where a man would go and prepare a place for his bride. If during that one-year period, one of them had been unfaithful, a certificate of divorce could be written. Why? Because the relationship had not been consummated and therefore the contract could end. The other view that Erasmus, a Roman Catholic theologian, introduced during the 1500s, and interestingly a number of reformers adopted, said, no, the exception clause is referring to sex after marriage. And that sex after marriage gives the innocent party freedom to remarry. Now, even the broader view the reality is, is that most people today who are on their second marriages can't even claim they're the innocent party. And please understand, I, am, I recognize speaking to people where over 60% of my people here this morning are in second marriages. Why is that? Because when you reach the culture, the sins of the culture come into the church. And very often, like the prostitute, like the tax gatherer who knew they were guilty, sometimes very often divorced people are very open to the gospel and willing and wanting to respond to the Lord Jesus. And please understand, if you have divorced your first spouse and you've married another, Deuteronomy 24 says, oh, I don't therefore go back and divorce my second one and go back to my first. God calls that an abomination. If God were to allow that, it would be basically legalizing adultery. In everything, there's no exceptions that God calls an abomination in the Old Testament are still abominations in this day. You say, what do I do if I'm in my second relationship? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, let each man remain in the condition in which he was called. I just want you to know if you are in a second marriage or a third marriage or whatever number it is, it is now the will of God for your life. And let me underscore that what God has called clean, let no man call unclean. Jesus said in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And so when we deal honestly, and this is the problem in our day, is many do not deal honestly. They tell me about their ex and what he was or what she was, but there's not honesty. So I'm counseling someone this week who's not a member of our church, and he's left his wife, and now he's found someone else, and now he's engaged to her. And he says, well, God has forgiven me. I said, God hasn't forgiven you. There's no repentance. What you are doing is evil. Your wife is still alive. And your wife has not remarried. And there's a possibility for reconciliation. He said, well, I waited several months. Several months. You may have to wait several years. And if she is single till she's 99, so you should be single and pray for reconciliation. And I said, you are not only a stumbling block to the one that you've committed adultery with, who's not a believer, but you're a stumbling block to your own children. Because you're basically saying, the word of God does not matter. And what the Lord Jesus and what the New Testament affirms and the Old Testament teaches as to the permanency of marriage, you are blowing it off. 
And I said, if your kids sort it out, it won't be because of you, it will be in spite of you. And so I tell people, hey, look, God can forgive all kinds of sin. But, you know, if a, a, a woman is pregnant, I wouldn't say, well, go ahead and have an abortion. God can forgive you. That's presuming on the grace of God. And people who presume on the grace of God may have indeed proof, positive evidence that they've never genuinely met the living God. All right, now there's the principle of being released from the law. Second, there's the illustration of being released from the law such that a marriage broken by death makes a second marriage legitimate. Finally, thirdly, there's the application of being released from the law. The application. Now, Paul's application is very simple here. Just as death terminates marriage, so our death in Christ has terminated our bondage to the law. Look, if you will, now at verse 4. We're bound to the law as long as we are alive. Therefore, in other words, in light of the truth that I've just illustrated and stated in the first verse, and, and here's the application. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. Now, we've heard that before, right? Turn back a page in your Bible to Romans 6 in verse 3. Remember what we studied in chapter 6 in verse 3? Or do you not know, he says, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, contrary to water salvationists, there's no water in this verse anywhere. He's not saying that when you get baptized into water that you're identified with the death of Christ. I think most of you understand that not a thimbleful, not a tankful, not an oceanful fill can wash away your sin. Nothing can wash away your sin but the blood of Christ. And baptism in Matthew 3 is called a work of righteousness. And in Titus 3, we're told that he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And so when we studied this text, we saw that every time the word baptism appears in the Bible, water isn't always in it. He's talking about water, spirit baptism. For we have all been baptized by one Holy Spirit. And so we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, but in addition, we learn we've been baptized into his death. What death is he referring to? The death of Christ there at Calvary. Our baptism into the death of the Lord Jesus took place the moment you received Christ as your Savior. Why is that? Because the moment you called upon Christ in faith to save you on the merits of his death, burial, and resurrection plus nothing else, God the Holy Spirit came to indwell you. He marked you. He identifies you as a child of God. And so what is true of Christ, as we studied in the sixth chapter, is true of you. That when Christ died, I died with him. When he was buried, I was buried with him. When he was raised, I was raised with him. In fact, Ephesians has us seated with him in the heavenly places. And so when we believe in Jesus to rescue us from sin's just penalty, all that he did through his death, burial, and resurrection becomes ours. And so in verse 5 here of chapter 6, he says, we've become united with him. How? In the likeness of his death. And so again, I am identified with him. Now back here at 7 in verse 4. Follow closely. Therefore, my brethren, you also, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, 
to him who was raised from the dead. Why? In order that you might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, lost, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law would work in the members of our body to do what? To bear fruit for death. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying because of our inability to keep the law in our lost state, any obedience we had to the law from a fallen state was nothing but works tainted with sin. I told you the time I went to my mother's house and I cleaned out her refrigerator. I flew up there in the early part of this week to help her out. And I was there for just 30 hours and came home and I cleaned out her refrigerator once again. It's always a masterpiece. But, you know, eggs can go bad in my mother's refrigerator. I didn't know that eggs could go bad, but years ago I made a beautiful omelet and I took these brand new eggs and I needed one more. I like four egg omelets. I know that's not good for your cholesterol, but I took one off the rack and I mixed them all together. And when I put it in my mouth, it was horrible because there was one bad egg mixed in with three good eggs. In any works that you do in your unsaved state, you can only do out of your fallen state and so your righteous deeds, not your best deeds, but your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. It's tainted with sin. How good must you be to go to heaven? Perfect. You need a perfect righteousness. And any good you do tainted with the sins we do disqualifies that. That's why James can say in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Do you know what that means? In the context, James is dealing with people who thought that showing partiality, prejudice between rich and poor was just a small thing. That in comparison to adultery or murder, it was no thing. And, and James says, listen, even the smallest infraction of the law is like you broke every single commandment in the eyes of a holy God. And so in Scripture, it's not the amount of sin that condemns you. It is the fact of sin. And so while the law says produce perfection, verse 4 says you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So because you cannot keep the law perfectly, because the law says produce perfection, the reality of it is, is all you can do is produce fruit for death. But when you come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you come and say, Lord Jesus, I bow before you and I admit I am a bankrupt sinner and I trust the merits of your cross, then God clothes you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you by your death with him and your identification with him are now released from the law in terms of it as being a basis for acceptance. Tomorrow, Pastor Brogy's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll see how the Spirit of God frees us from the bond of the law as we continue our study of Romans chapter 7. To hear this message in its entirety, download the Search the Scriptures app for Android and Apple devices online. Just search the Google Marketplace or iTunes store for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. You can also listen to our website, searchthescriptures.org, as well as call us at 877-787-7478 
to order a CD or DVD copy. More and more people are using Twitter to follow people. And if you tweet, be sure to follow at CJ to get insights from Pastor Carl. That Twitter address again is at CJ Join us again Monday as we continue our look at being released from the law and search the scriptures.